Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Next Strategy Skills podcast. And I have a very interesting and exciting guest today, Rob Markey, who is a senior partner at Bain & Company. So what happened is that Bain sent us a copy, an advanced copy of an article that Rob had written that will appear in the Harvard Business Review in the January-February publication cycle. And it's called, Are You Undervaluing Your Customers? So I received a copy of that article. I read it, and I really liked it. And I thought it would be a very good idea to have Rob join us, whereby he can talk to some of the insights. And when I read the article, I was quite taken with it, because for one, it's very well written. I think a lot of articles about measuring customer value and measuring loyalty, they tend to favor discussing what I would call nebulous concepts that are hard to pin down, and they tend to lack some quantitative rigor behind them. So well-written, there's some quantitative rigor behind it. I also thought that Rob's a very smart guy. He knew what he was talking about, obviously. He had ways of drawing out insights that I thought made it easy for the audience and I'm sure his clients to understand and appreciate. And I also thought that the message was very practical. A lot of uh, discussions about marketing, customers, and loyalty, they tend to focus heavily on how you market to customers, but not so much on how you measure value of customers over the lifetime of the transaction. So the article was very, very timely, and I think it's something that most clients are going to like listening to. And actually what follows is probably one of the best conversations I've ever had with a partner discussing business concepts and new ways of adding value to companies and customers. So Rob's background is interesting. He joined Bain in 1990 and he headed up at one point the customer strategy and marketing practice and is now a senior partner in that practice. But what's interesting about his career is that he joined in 1990. So he has seen how consumerism, capitalism, engaging at customers has changed over some very different defining periods because you've had the collapse of the former Soviet Union since 1990, whereby you have to inject capitalism and consumerism into a society that had never seen it before. Then you have the rise of China, which has introduced capitalism in a new way and consumerism in a new way. And of course, if you've been following what's happening in China, you know that the Chinese are doing things differently, not just in the way the customers pay for things, but also in the way you engage customers. And finally, the advent of digital and the rise of the emerging market. So Rob has had a career that has spanned a very exciting time in business. And I thought that speaking to him would give us an opportunity to draw out some of those insights that are underpinned by these experiences. The other thing I liked about him is that he runs the NPS Loyalty Forum. And I think it's something like 35 senior executives and he talks to them about loyalty and customers and how to manage consumers. Because one of the challenges you have as a partner is that as you get more and more senior, assuming you're successful, which you know is the case if you're getting more and more senior, you tend to focus on your major clients. So you have five, maybe six major clients and you spend most of your time there. But the conversation that customers have with you, just because you're interested and not just because you're doing an engagement with them, is very different. And I like the fact that he runs this forum and he's talking to companies and senior executives to help them understand things and not just building insights into the conversation based on clients he's serving because the nature of the discussions tend to be very, very different. The other thing I want to point out is that I have read his previous book. Uh, It's called The Ultimate Question 2.0, How Net Promoter Companies thrive in a customer-driven world, Harvard Business Review Press, New York Times, and Wall Street Journal bestseller. I thought it was a very good book. So I thought that the article had built on some of those points, but it touched on things that uh, were a little bit newer. We're going to talk about many things today. We're going to talk about what is a loyalty customer? How do you generate loyalty? How do you measure the lifetime value of a customer? What steps do you take to build loyalty in your customer base? Is it something that you can just decide should be a separate division in your company called loyalty? Or does it require you to change fundamentally the way you run your business? One of the things Rob said, which I really liked, is when you when you think about the changes you have to make in your business, it's a little bit scary as an executive. You know, Are you going to be spending tens and 20, hundreds of millions of dollars restructuring your business to better serve customers? And something Rob talks about, which I like, and I think people should pay attention to, is the fact that you can start this process quickly 
and I would say relatively cheaply without a massive disruption to your organization. I think that's important. And finally, the major part that I particularly liked is that there is a big push today whereby capitalism needs to be more caring. Companies need to do more to think about their customers as being of equal importance as shareholders. And one of the things Rob and I talk about is how this model or this way of thinking he has propagated and has obviously tested in many companies around the world can help companies be caring in the way they manage their customers. So my advice to people listening to this is that I think if you follow the advice in the article and the general teachings of Rob and his practice, I think companies will be better stewards of the trust that customers have given them. So I hope you like what I think is one of the best podcast interviews we've ever done at Firms Consulting, and I look forward to your comments. Hi, Rob. Hi. How are you, Michael? Fantastic. And yourself? Oh, very well. Very I'm well. so pleased that you made time to see me just before the Christmas break. It's, uh, I feel special. <laughs> well, maybe I'm the one who should feel special. You, uh, <laughs> you, you're taking the time to speak with me. That's true. That's true. So let's talk about a very interesting article you have coming out in the Harvard Business Review. I think it's a January, February. So it's coming out in about a month's time, right? Yeah, it's actually, uh, it's, it should be hitting the bookshelves or the, uh, the, the store shelves right now. Okay, fantastic. So I liked the article a lot because it wasn't an article offering an easy solution, but really getting people to think more deeply about what they're doing with their capital, time, effort, recruiting, and so on. And for those of you listening, it's called, you know, Are You Underserving Your Customers? And what we want to talk about today is the article itself, but I'm going to touch on a few important points that Rob brought up. So let's start with the first one. I'm going to go straight into it. Everyone I ever speak to, doesn't matter which executive it is, they all tell you they put customers first. Of course. So if everyone thinks they put customers first, why are they not putting customers first? Well, there there are a whole bunch of reasons for that, Michael. And and actually, there there are many very well-intentioned business leaders, very many CEOs who really deeply believe that they do put customers first and want to. One thing to keep in mind is that about a decade ago, I did some research with some of my colleagues on this very topic of um, the intent to deliver an exceptional experience to customers versus the way customers actually experience it. And while 80% of the executives we interviewed believed that they delivered an exceptional, a a differentiated experience. The truth is that only 8% of the customers thought that they did. So one issue is just the, what happens in boardrooms Mm -hmm. is so far away from the front line often that it's hard to tell. That actually makes way for another issue, which is that most organizations are they, they view the business through lenses that were built originally in like the 1600s, yes, yes. which is accounting. You know, mm-hmm. Accounting was originally developed a long, long time ago in the, it, it, at a time when what, the only thing that really mattered was, do you have a set of assets that are worth something? Yes. So the balance sheet was mm-hmm. the first thing to develop. And the idea of the income statement actually came a little bit later. And it's only been in recent years that there's been any attempt at all to truly take account of the source of all of these assets and all of this profit, the customers. So when you're trying to run a business on that basis and you don't actually see, you have no visibility into the health of customer relationships, all you've got is, you know, think of it as the, the smoke trails behind that are that, that come to you in the form of revenues and costs and number of products sold. It's very hard to actually maximize the value of those relationships and make real lasting investments. And then the other side of that is that leadership teams with great intentions set out on a strategy to invest, to create value for their customers. And then inevitably they hit a down quarter. The market conditions change. And suddenly, especially in public companies, there's a dramatic need to cut back on discretionary spending. And so what are the sources of discretionary spending? Well, marketing, Mm -hmm. one of the first things to go. I mean, you know, everybody's used to their travel budgets and all that kind of stuff. That doesn't get you very far. Marketing is a big one. But then people will cut back, and I see it all the time, on the number of contact center reps that they have. So how long it takes to answer the phone 
and whether the best people are available in a reasonable yeah. time. The number of uh, store uh, salespeople on the floor available to serve customers. Um, and ultimately, in, a, in an extended downturn, they start to search for additional sources of revenue, which often come in the form of nuisance fees and other things like that's where the, the baggage fees in the airline industry came yes. from. And these are all things that in the near term make you make you a lot of money. You know, they help you make your goals. They help you in some cases survive, but they may often come at the expense of relationships with customers. Mm-hmm. There's just no way to see it. Yes. In fact, I'll just elaborate for one second. Is Imagine you are looking at a company that um, faces a choice. The choice is whether or not to impose a nuisance fee to yes. make their quarterly numbers. So let's suppose that they they don't impose the nuisance fee. What do they show on their balance sheet and their income statement? Well, they show declining profits and revenues because it's a downturn. And... Um, they actually eat into their cash position or their retained earnings or something that, that degrades their financial position. Now take the situation where they they don't impose or, or sorry, they impose the fee. Well, what what happens immediately? Well, profits well, they sh- yeah, they show an increase in revenue and profits and and an, an improvement in their cash position or their retained earnings. Mm-hmm. So imagine though that you also had the ability to understand the effect that had on the total value of your customer base. Mm-hmm. Because perhaps that fee comes at the cost of long-term relationships with a large number of customers. Yes. And if you if you destroy more value than you create, there actually is nothing holding you accountable for it. You, it as a business that? leader, you're more on the hook for the changing value of stock options than you are for the changing value of your customer base. And that's just strange to me. Now, that's interesting because you're saying that it's the way we are rewarding leaders. Is, is that what you're saying? We are, we are well, too focused the way on shares yeah, in the short term. Uh, yeah, I, we, I am saying that, Michael, but I'm also saying that, that the way we're rewarding leaders is really just a function of the way that the, the lenses we have to view yes. a business. So you know, it's, it's we, we reward leaders on this basis because that's the source of reliable data. Yes. Okay, this Never is a be- good point. You talk about reliable data, right? It sounds yeah. like this is this will require a significant investment and a change in how companies collect data if they need to understand customers close to real time. Is, is that a fair assessment? In some cases it is, and in some cases it's not. So because companies have caught up. Well, Actually, think about a couple of things. There's, there's, and, and let's separate two things. One would be reporting yes. in a way that gives you insight, gives investors and boards insight into the changing value of a company's customer base. Are you increasing the value of your customer base by growing the number of customers and the profitability and the the lifetime value of the customers, or are you is your customer base value deteriorating? Yes. As an investor, I want to know that. To do that. All we need is four basic types of information. How many customers do you have? Mm -hmm. How much are they spending? How frequently are they spending it? Right. And how many are you losing and gaining? That's it. I mean, I'm oversimplifying only a little. So that doesn't actually, for most companies, that doesn't cost very much at all to report on that and to look at it themselves. To manage, though, this is the other side of it, to manage for customer value. Many companies have the rudiments in place. Many others don't. So you actually have to have the ability to look at an individual customer and groups of customers as they pass through the different stages of their lifetime and as they pass through the different functions and processes and Mm -hmm. experiences of your business. That longitudinal view of a customer is what gives you a picture into their lifetime value. And to manage for customer value or what we call customer capital requires having a toolkit that enables you to place a a value, customer lifetime value on any given customer or group of customers and then measure changes in it based on changes in observed behavior and changes in sentiment or affect Mm -hmm. towards the company as measured by something like net promoter score. This would seem to be easier for some companies to do like a bank. Mm-hmm. which has a very close digital 
intimacy with its customers versus someone like a Victoria's Secret. I mean, I'm sure they're doing it, but the, the, the level of difficulty would seem to be different because I'm guessing when you walk into Victoria's Secrets and you walk out, the, the company doesn't really know if you, if you come back in two weeks or, or do they? In many cases, retailers, bricks and mortar retailers do have ways of identifying individual customers based on their purchases. Um, yes. they, use, they do it based on payment forms and they do it based on other indicators that allow you know many of them have rewards programs i'm getting a slight digression most companies call these loyalty programs and i refuse to call them loyalty (laughs) programs because they don't engender loyalty they are simply rewards but they do have a good effect which is they they enable an exchange with the customer the customer says i'll give you my information if in return you treat me better or give me some value back Okay. And so a Victoria's Secret, I actually don't know in that specific mm-hmm. case if they have a rewards program well, or not. Well, just as an example, it could be any retailer. Right. But, but, but if they do have a rewards program, then there's an additional group of people who are paying with cash that they can also track pretty easily. But since payment forms, payment vehicles have become um, a pretty reliable mm-hmm. vehicle for identifying customers at the point of sale, most companies have at least some ability to track a customer's purchases over time. What they miss is a customer who walks into the store, looks around for something, and then fails to find what they were looking for and leaves. Yes. So we talk about customers, but really the end goal is loyal customers, right? So we're talking about measuring. And it doesn't sound like you need to measure much because most companies are not measuring it anyway. So just starting the process is going to be value to them. But how do you make this conversion from measuring customers to using all that data to to creating loyal customers well this is this is the thing that sounds says easy and does hard right because there's actually a pretty complete toolkit that again many companies have a lot of the rudiments in place and many companies have pieces and parts that they're operating quite well very few companies put it all together but an example would be uh, there are a large number of companies and a growing number of companies that have some form of lifetime model that informs decisions about who to try to sell more stuff to yeah. and maybe whether to put somebody into an exclusive tier of service or something like that. Many other companies have reasonably sophisticated marketing programs that enable them to identify what they would call the next best offer to make a customer based on an assessment of their historical purchases and the segment we think they're in and their demographics and all that stuff. Very few companies put those two things together, meaning very few companies are able to say, here's here's Michael, here are the set of interactions that I've had with him, the purchases that he has made, the segment that I think he's in, and all of the options that I have for treatment, marketing, sales, and coordinate those to maximize the value of the relationship with Michael. And and so it requires operational customer lifetime value models and next best action models. Mm -hmm. It requires coordinated efforts across marketing, and it requires a perspective on products and servicing that reorients around customer need Mm -hmm. instead of around product or function. There are very few companies that have that have fully made that transition from product-based or functionally organized to customer need-based. And it sounds like this is something that has to be driven from the top to generate the momentum and clear away the hurdles to getting different parts of the organization to work together. I think that adopting the full toolkit has to come from the top because it requires clear intent it, incli- it requires clarity of the outcome we're shooting for, which is growth in the value of the customer base, not just growth in the number of clicks or the number of new customers. Or, you know. And it requires um, fundamentally different operating model and organization uh, design for, an, for a company. So let's think about this, right? How does a company go about making such a transition? Well, I would say that this is where I would say it doesn't necess- not everything has to start at the top. Okay. So there are good opportunities to lay the foundation of this from the bottom or middle of the organization. So adopting tools for measuring and managing customer lifetime value, marketing 
for lifetime value as opposed to clicks and new customer acquisition. Choosing sales targets and rewarding salespeople, mm-hmm. not just for new business, but for lifetime value of the yes. business. You know, the, the uh, customer success function that has grown up in a lot of organizations. All of those things are necessary groundwork foundation that have to be at least partially in place mm-hmm. if you want to make the big leap to a needs-driven, customer-focused organization. And a lot of those can start at the functional level, at the departmental level, at the even center of excellence level. So you need the pieces in place, and it's how you bring them together to create loyalty amongst your customers. At some point, at some point, the leadership team has to get together and say, in order for this business to yes. grow profitably and to maximize the value of our, or of our company, we need to maximize the value of our customer base. We need to grow our customer capital. And how would a company know that they're not maximizing or not creating the maximum loyalty from their customers? How would they know that? Is there a way for them to self-reflect? Well, this is an interesting challenge because there hasn't been a set of standards Mm -hmm. for reporting fundamental customer data, like the number of customers you have, how many you acquired, how many of them are active what the revenue per customer is, attrition rates, like all those things are voluntary right now. And there are no standards, standard definitions. So what you see is companies reporting what they want to when it makes them look good. And you find yourself having a terribly difficult time benchmarking your company versus the competition to know whether you are doing well or doing poorly versus folks who are in the same business. Mm -hmm. So, so one way to figure out where you stand would be just benchmarking yourself. Now there are proxies you can use. You can use competitive benchmark net promoter scores to get a sense of how customers feel about you. You can look at disclosures that companies make Mm -hmm. about the number of customers they acquire and the number of customers they have to get a sense of how you're doing and whether you're gaining or losing share on that basis. Ultimately, oh, go ahead. No, no, continue. Until we have standards for that kind of reporting, I think you're left to do diagnostics Mm. of some of the functions and behaviors and processes in the organization. So for example, do you have in place the set of marketing and analytics skills required to market to and, and talk to customers in a true longitudinal dialogue as opposed to through campaigns. Do you have in place a clear segmentation of your customers that allows you to see different parts of your business and gauge the extent to which you are growing or shrinking the value of that segment of your customers? And and is the direction of movement positive or negative? Are you is, is each cohort of new customers performing better mm-hmm. than last year's? Is the retention of each cohort doing better? You know, what, what are the, the fundamental drivers of lifetime value? Are they improving or are they deteriorating? Mm-hmm. It seems to me that from what I've seen reported in the press, mainly companies like Netflix, subscription-based companies, they seem to be pretty good at that, although that's just anecdotal evidence. Is that a fair observation or is it something that is better done at certain other industries? Well, I think that it's natural for businesses that are in what you would you would call subscription businesses or contractual businesses to be better at this. So so what's the group of businesses that has developed the most sophisticated skills and tools around this? It would be subscription businesses like Netflix and Amazon and Warby Parker and, you know, name the, the long list. But going back further in time, it actually started in banking and telecom. You know, in the when when the yeah. U.S. telecom business deregulated and the Bell system broke up and a bunch of new competitors grew up, churn, meaning uh, attrition, became a major factor mm, and right. new customer acquisition was a big deal. And as a result... That was the early stages of, you know, attrition modeling, pr- attrition prediction modeling and save programs mm-hmm. and things like that. And out of that, in telecom, in credit cards, in retail banking, grew a set of tools for new customer acquisition around customer 
potential customer lifetime value, for onboarding to enhance the value of an early tenure customer, for retention to head off potential attrition, and for a variety of other things, you know, upsell, cross-sell to enhance the value of the customers. What was lacking at that point in time was um, the ability to store and analyze large data sets and to combine it with not just internal data, but external data. And here we are, you know, 20 or 30 years after the development of all these things. And now we actually have that and it's available broadly. Yes. So, so, so it is spreading to utilities. It's spreading to certain bricks and mortar retailers, hotels, airlines, you know, the, the diversity, a lot of B2B categories like industrial supply, you know, plumbing supply businesses and industrial services like you know, facilities management and cleaning services. Well, let's, let's keep talking about financial services. Right? I don't think I've ever heard anyone say they are loyal to a bank. I'm just saying, mm-hmm. I've never heard anyone say that. I don't think I'm loyal to a bank. So banks have all this capability. And of course, I'm sure some do it much better than others. Yeah. But are banks leaving something on the table? An example of this is... Um, you know, I bank with, I think, uh, well, let's not mention the bank, but I have a bank account. And this bank obviously knows what I'm doing every day because it sees a charge going through on my accounts. Mm-hmm. And then it has a list of, what's the word I'm looking for, coupons or specials that I can go into, log into the bank website. I need to then tick the special I want to use. It then loads it into my account. And then when I go to a Starbucks, it gives me 30% off or something like that. But this is a well-known major bank. Wouldn't it, couldn't it make my life a lot easier by making the offer available to me while I'm at the establishment? Well, you're probably running into a technology limitation that will, over time, Fix get it. tackled. Yeah. I, I think that's, you know, you're talking specifically about the delivery what I would term ancillary value or or almost unrelated value, like the relationship between a discount at Starbucks and your choice of where to bank is probably pretty minor. So, so what you're saying here is that in this case, the bank could have very well have made the decision not to to develop that capability because they didn't see that as a driver of loyalty. I, you know, that I think is a choice that they've made and they probably on the margin see some value in certain segments without having dug into their specific data. I don't know the efficacy of that, but I would would, guess that it's a conscious decision. It's a conscious decision, but it's one that I think might be ill-advised. And I think it might be ill-advised because you and I probably don't choose our bank on the basis yeah. of the discount we receive at the drugstore yeah. or the gas station. We probably choose our bank on the basis of how convenient it is to use their mobile app and to use their branches. The extent to which changes in our accounts can be made easily and without much effort. The support we feel we get when we run into a challenge or problem or we need to apply for a loan. Those are the things that seem to matter. Mm -hmm. And at Bain, we've done tremendous depth of research on this. So it is an area where I'm speaking from a reasonably strong fact base. We have something we call NPS Prism, where for several years now, we've been looking at retail banking. It's funny that you chose that particular industry. It's the, the one we've been doing the longest. Good. We've been looking at retail banking. What drives, or or better said, earns loyalty in that industry, which banks seem to excel? And this is in multiple markets around the world. And what the reasons are that company, that uh, individuals, that consumers are uh, staying with, you know, adding to or switching away from their bank. Yes. And what we find is that, first of all, several years ago, the capability of a bank's mobile apps was creating tremendous differentiation. And when we looked at people who were switching banks or staying with their bank, a lot of the reason ended up coming down to the impact of the mobile app on the ease of use. In some cases, the problems that the mobile app created. In the big picture, the things that matter the most seem to be issue resolution when people have you know, run into problems. Yeah the imposition of 
nuisance fees and other kinds of fees for services, frequency with which those are charged, the policies around imposing them and so on, and um, the convenience and support that they feel when they go into either a phone or face-to-face channel. So this the, is, the, the so discounts on, on Starbucks, they don't come up. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, no, I can imagine. Don't talk about if, I, if I'm hearing you correctly, if I'm just reflecting this for the listeners, if what you're saying is the bank is looking at each touch point it has with its customers. It's then looking at where the pain points are for those customers. And it's saying we're going to take those pain points and we're going to rank them and categorize them. And the ones that cause customers to migrate or leave the bank you know, the opposite of loyalty are the ones we're going to worry about. That's um, half the story. And then the other half of the story is they're looking at the customers who are most loyal, the, mm-hmm. the promoters, and asking the question, how did they get that way? And what did we do to earn their loyalty? And they're doubling down on investments there. Or they're looking at competitors and saying, how are those guys beating us? What do we need to do in order to catch up and offer as much value as they do? And a loyal customer, is it always categorized as one who generates the biggest return? Or is, well, it, is there another way to look at it? I mean, over the lifetime of the customer. Yeah, so <laughs> I love your, uh, you're asking great questions. A loyal customer, in my definition, in Bain's definition, is a customer who not only stays with you, buys more, but also is emotionally committed to your success in some way, shape, or form. They're resilient in the face of problems. They root for you when you're down, and they convince their friends to come do business with you. That's what we call a promoter. That, I've never that, heard that is loyal. anyone talk about customers like that. That's a great way to talk about customers. Well, think about USAA. You say no one, you know, you don't, you don't think about like getting really enthusiastic about your bank. Yeah. People who bank with USAA. Yeah. They are fanatics. I mean, they are true promoters. And if you ask somebody who has been a longtime customer of USAA to describe what the experience is like and you ask them whether you should switch banks to USAA, I mean, good luck. You're going to be in a conversation for quite a while and they're probably going to basically dial the phone for you and get you signed up. (laughs) So what are they doing differently? What makes them able to engender that? Well, they're doing a thousand different things differently, and that's what makes their model so hard to replicate. For one thing, uh, they have a mission around serving members of the military, families of the military, former members of the military. I mean, that that mission is at the core is still there, but the truth is their population of customers has expanded far beyond active duty military. Second thing, and and that mission, by the way, is, is deeply embedded in their culture. Now, they are truly a cooperative model, so they're owned by their customers, which gives them an advantage because culturally, they can use that as a touchstone to Mm -hmm. say, is this thing I'm about to do going to enhance the value of the relationship for this member? And so there's there's no conflict at USAA between shareholders and, and customers. And actually observing them was one of the things that led me Mm -hmm. down this path towards customer capital and thinking about why it is that companies like USAA Mm -hmm. that are either owned by their sharehold, by by their customers, owned by the founder or otherwise controlled by the founding family seem to dominate the ranks of enduring loyalty leading companies. Yeah, it reminds me of some of those European football teams that are owned by their fans. Mm. And they have, you know, incredible loyalty. I mean, these people will die before they switch sides. <laughs> well, I'm sure that there's, I'm, I'm sure that the opportunity to own a piece of your European football team is one piece of the equation. I have a hunch that yeah. there's a lot more going on there yeah, culturally. <laughs> but, it, but the point, the, the analogy is that these are absolutely loyal people in your corner. And if you're having and, a bad year, you can rely on them. They will help you choose the right product for your needs, not just the best one that makes them the most money or the the one that's being promoted this week mm-hmm. in, inside the bank and you know they get some kind of spiff or or uh, bonus for. They, they will do that. They will take the time necessary on the phone to make sure you understand what they're doing and why and how to use their services. And they will be very thoughtful 
about yes. the way that they apply their policies so that if you find yourself in a bind or having made a mistake, they're not penalizing you for doing something the first time mm. so that you get a chance to learn. It, it's an amazingly intricate and interconnected set of actions, decisions, cultural norms, and organizational structures that makes USAA so powerful. And one of the things that they exemplify is a trend that we we see emerging where companies are breaking down organizational silos that defeat the ability to serve customers well by adopting new operating models that are built around those customer needs. And, and what USAA has done over the last several years to break down those functional silos and reorganize teams that are cross-disciplinary uh, around customer needs has just been something tremendous. They uh, give you the example. Uh, if It used to be that when you were a USAA customer buying a car, you would you know, get to some point in the negotiation to buy the car where financing was an issue. And you'd be like, oh, I have, I could check out the pricing of a car loan at USAA. And you might call them up and they would do a really good job. I mean, amazing job of helping you get the best rate on a car loan. And then separately at, a, at another point in the purchase, you might realize, oh, I can't drive this car off the lot until I have insurance. Mm -hmm. I better think about who to get insurance from. And among the, the you know, Geico and Progressive and all the others that say, oh, yeah, I, I'm a USAA customer. Let me let me check out what the pricing is there. Those two product lines were almost completely disconnected. The way you went about buying them, the terms, the way that the, they were packaged, they, they were each determined very well, having to do with, the you know, serving the needs of the member, but they weren't coordinated. And there was no there was no perception of need to coordinate. So, so basically, the customer was forced to figure it out for themselves before. Yeah, yeah, and and be fair, like they did a fine job. Like they were really good at both, you know, auto financing sure. and auto insurance. A couple of years ago, they said, you know, if we really step back and think about what the need is here, the need is for someone to get a new car to get transportation, and the the moment that that starts is really when they first return from overseas duty mm -hmm. and they realize, oh, I'm going to be on a base where things are far away. I need a car. And the next question becomes, well, what kind of car should I buy? What model, what make, what set of features and so on? And then from there, like, how do I figure out the pricing and how do I negotiate for the purchase? And then it's like, oh yeah, and I need financing and I need insurance. So what USAA did is they created a team whose overarching objective was to help their members satisfy their need for transportation and choose, like, should I buy a car or not? If I buy a car, what kind of car should I buy based on my situation, my needs, and my means? Because you had a lot of situations where somebody would be returning from overseas duty. They're a 24-year-old macho guy, say, and they want to buy, you know, and they're going to be on a base in Texas and they want to buy an awesome muscle car yeah. to impress the girls and their friends. You know, can they afford that? Mm. Is the insurance on that going to be crazy high? You know, what is the right vehicle for them given their, their life stage and their needs? And in many cases, what happens now is that instead of coming back with, hey, look, uh, here's our pricing on that. I don't know what the, the cool car is today, but you know, that, that souped up Mustang or here's our, uh, mortgage and our, mm. and our auto, uh, insurance pricing, which, and, and by the way, they're crazy high prices. What happens now is a more consultative discussion where they say, Hey, let's talk about whether this is the right kind of car for you. And let's talk about the trade-off between the cost and the benefit. And, you know, is there some, here's three other vehicles that might be more appropriate for your life stage, your means, your driving style and so on, and actually put them in a position where USAA not only helps them choose a better vehicle for them, that's more affordable and, and so on, but also where USAA can in fact underwrite that loan and that insurance at a highly advantaged rate versus competition. That's a, you know, that is a complete rethinking of the way that they make that offering available. And it then requires 
changing the product line, changing the way that they uh, sell it, mm. changing the way they price it. But also, in listening to the story, which is a fantastic example, by the way, it sounds to me, and I could be wrong, that the entire way they are developing products is also changing. Because I think what a lot of companies do is they develop a product and then they think about how to push it to a customer. But it sounds as if they're looking at what their customers need and then they are developing products to match that need. Is that a good way of thinking about it? That is a that is a very well stated and much more elegant way of saying what I said in lots and lots more words. <laughs> I think you're selling yourself a bit too short there. But it, it definitely changes even the way you will recruit people to develop products, the way you you will house them because you know most companies they have these r&d departments which cook up stuff but it seems you almost have to be a little bit like a uh, someone that likes observing customers and and seeing their pain points spending time with them and then as you say consultative building solutions around what they see are the problems i think there are companies like intuit that pioneered this human-centered design approach at scale where they created a whole organization of people who developed deep empathy for customers and their needs and worked hard to figure out how they could satisfy those needs in simpler and more elegant ways. And that that discipline has spread. What hasn't spread as quickly is into its insistence that everybody in a leadership role plays some uh, role, you know, experience the, the the needs, the usage, the way that their customers interact with their products mm. so that they have a deeper empathy for them and they understand how their function, their product team, their whatever relates to meeting those customers' needs. And I think you mentioned this very well earlier where you said that a lot of times as people become more and more senior, they get further and, away from, further, and further away from customers and don't really appreciate some of the pain customers go through. Yeah, and they don't need to, but it is it it is hard when you're a senior leader in a large organization to make time to interact with customers, to learn about their needs, to get down to that granular level so that you don't end up in, you know, one of the 72% of those executives saying they deliver a, a differentiated experience, you know, where your customers are like, yeah, no. Not happening. One of the things I like about this, even though you have not um, you know, brought it out, but I, I see that it could have a more humane way of thinking about capitalism because if you want to have value with the customer over the life cycle, you can't be trying to sell that person a lemon. No. Because they're never no. going to come back. So it forces you to, to not just think about how to close the sale, but how to make sure the sale is right for the customer. You know, one of my, one of my colleagues, Fred Reichheld, likes to say that the right measure uh, of whether a company is doing things well or whether an employee is doing things well is the number of lives enriched minus the number of lives. What is the word he uses? Um, not enriched. Let's, let's just say, you know, uh, having a brain cramp on that one. Um, that kind of thinking lies at the heart of the enduring loyalty leading companies. You know, USAA is a great example. Vanguard is a great example. I think the customer obsession culture at Amazon may feel like it's harder nosed, but at yes. the end of the day, the decisions they make are almost always designed to enhance the long-term value of their relationship with their, their customers. Mm -hmm. Costco mm -hmm. is a tremendous example of this. Yes. You, you know, the old what? Nordstrom story about, you know, taking back a, uh, a tire. <laughs> yeah. Th those are iconic companies, Disney, that, that really do spend a lot of energy thinking about what will this feel like to the customer and how can I enrich their life? Yes. But what's really nice about this is that when I first read the article and before I'd spoken to you, it sounded like, you know, it's, it's a piece about loyalty and understanding customers. But, you know, as you're well aware, the other big topic in business today is how to be, you know, how to have caring capitalism. But in mm -hmm. many of those discussions, we never see the mechanics of how to do that. Mm -hmm. But I feel that your piece, or at least in you know, a Bain and your practices piece, it, it puts in the pieces of how to get that done. Well, I, I hope so. That's the intent here. I mean, this grew out of a personal, a personal frustration with the work that I had done, which I felt was tremendous work and my clients were absolutely thrilled with mm. that got undone yes. during the next downturn. Well, isn't that always the case, right? 
people. Well, and that, that's what got me on this idea, Michael, of, of changing the rules of the game because it's so pervasive in public companies that I felt that there needed to be a new way to measure success in businesses that is reliable and persistent and where there are standards that aligns not only with creating customer value, but shareholder value. Because if you really do want to maximize the value of your company for shareholders, then you must, by definition, maximize the value of your customer base. Yeah, you're not treating your customers as a transaction anymore. They're part of almost an extended family. No, if you view them as a transaction, you're leaving a ton of money on the table. Now, I there are absolutely real-time constraints and needs to deliver yes. earnings on a particular day or, or to manage cash, right? That's a constraint. But the goal has to be maximizing the value of the relationship. Well, this is a good seg- segue because if there's going to be some kind of dip in earnings because you're investing in better serving customers, this is where you have to communicate with your shareholders, right? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, we, we touched on this earlier about the need to communicate with shareholders, but I don't think enough companies do that, at least from what I've seen. It, what's interesting is which companies do it and when they do it. Yeah. That, so that, a great a example, about it. you know, I had a team of mine take a look at um, all of the IPOs that were done in, or, or sorry, better said, the S1 registrations mm-hmm. with the US SEC for IPOs in uh, 2018. And of those, we chose 309 companies that were explicitly preparing for a public stock offering and where they were in industries that made sense. About a quarter of them included metrics like the active customer count, mm-hmm. the new customers acquired, the purchases per customer, and so on. And the companies that were doing that tended to be companies that were in high growth mode, showing zero or negative profitability today, but basically making the case that their valuation depended on the value they were creating in a customer base. Future value. Future value of of the customer base they were acquiring and building. And that kind of reporting is great but then when you follow the companies that do that do that in their s1 into the time when they're public Mm -hmm. what you find is that a significant number of them start dropping the reporting of some of those metrics as they go through time why because those metrics start to not look very good for one reason or another and as a result they end up obscuring the value creation or value destruction in their customer base. And so as an investor, how can I stand behind a company that is where that's earnings are going down when I don't have visibility into whether they're growing or decreasing the value of their customer base? So you're distinguishing between health and performance. Absolutely. But in a, in a metric driven way. As in one to quarter, it. It, right, in a downturn. In a downturn, it may be that the the value creating thing to do is to uh, allow your earnings to drop pretty significantly, and you know do the right thing, so to speak, for your customers. A good example of a company that has done that every single time would be Vanguard. You know, every market downturn, they they go through this um, exercise where they're just trying to figure out how do we help our members survive through this downturn in, in the best way possible, our investors. And, you know, they they absolutely make a short-term, long-term trade-off. Mm-hmm. And they say, we're going to suck this up for a year or two. And when we come out the other side, we're going to be stronger for it because we're going to keep much more of the customers that we had going in and much more of the assets we had going in. And then we're going to grow a lot as customers seek a safe haven for their money. So how did Vanguard get to the point where it is able to have its investors so on board in its thinking? Well, Vanguard is another example like uh, USAA that's owned by its its customers. So its customers understand why it's doing it because they they are part of the decision in a manner of speaking. In a manner of speaking. I mean, the, what hap- the way that it works at Vanguard is that the investors in a particular mutual fund own that fund. And then the fund, in turn, owns a portion of the management company, Vanguard. It's like those football teams. I always go to football examples. You're going to see. (laughs) It's like those football teams. I remember reading a great piece about how they have made the decision not to lower ticket prices. 
mm-hmm. which obviously affected a lot of people. And the reason they did it is because they were able to get the um, fans behind the idea to spend more money on transfers to bring in good players. There you go. And obviously, it's a lot easier to communicate it to people that are diehard fans because they understand the economics and decisions that sit behind everything. So it's, it's, it sounds as, almost as if you, you need to really, for this to work, one of the elements is you've got to really rethink the way you communicate and treat your investors. You do. And you need your investors to be on board this strategy with you. And you need to give them the data that they require to have confidence that you know short-term may wave around a little bit, but long-term, you're growing value. And, and again, it comes down to, okay, performance is down, but... This is what we're doing to fix the underlying health of the business. And this is what you need to focus on because once these two years are over, this is what it will look like once the investments pay off. Exactly. This is why you why you should believe that this is the value-maximizing way to run this business. And I think it makes sense because you don't want erratic investors who sell your shares for the wrong reasons, right? Or buy in as well for the wrong reasons. Absolutely. Now, the reality is that a lot of management teams are stuck with an investor base that is short-term focused. And so that becomes a difficult thing. They've got to actually create the conditions by which they can attract those long-term investors. And they've got to be consistent in what they report. In, in fact, one of the things that I've, I've done, Michael, is I actually have made a proposal to the Financial Accounting Standards Board to change the accounting disclosure standards so that there are specific definitions around these metrics that enable you to value a company based on its customer base, and so that there are specific requirements for things that need to be reported. And in doing so, my hope is to create more confidence in the investment community Mm -hmm. investing behind loyalty-driven strategies. I like that. It also will, will force a standardization, which is not there at the moment. That's exactly what we're looking for. Because I think, I think that's the hardest part as an investor. You know, how do you compare companies? How do you know that this company does care about customers versus company B, C, or D? Well, it's, it, it takes, you know, at the beginning of this conversation, you started off by saying, look, every CEO says that they care mm. about customers, customers are number do. one, blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, how do you know? Well, there are ways to know. There actually are ways to know. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you can look at a company's, the, the growth of a company's customer base, the churn rate, the value of each successive cohort of customers and their progression and profitability over time. And you can look at their net promoter scores, mm. competitive benchmark scores, not the ones that the company self-reports, sure, yeah. but the ones that come from outside. <laughs> those, those kinds of things give you very, very good read on whether that management team's you know, actions are measuring up to their words. It's almost like a canary in a coal mine. It's a a warning sign. Because if if your scores start dipping in a few months or a year, you're going to see it in your earnings. Well, interestingly, um, one of the things that we have developed a a large fact base around Mm -hmm. is the relationship between competitive benchmark net promoter scores and uh, subsequent indicators of customer lifetime value. And what you can see is that typically the benchmark or you know, outside in apples to apples net promoter scores, they changes in those scores precede the, the similar changes in lifetime value drivers mm. by a you know, depending on the industry. So it's definitely is a warning, months. actually. Yeah, it is. It's I mean, all they are, by the way, a lot of people forget this, but net promoter was developed as a way to predict the lifetime value mm-hmm. of individual customers and to measure the health of a entire customer base. And so it, down at the granular level of the individual customer, the, the objective function is predicting the drivers of lifetime value. You know, are you going to stay longer, yes. buy more, tell your friends? It costs less to serve. And so that's why it's actually a pretty good, you know, it's not the, statistically they're probably better things that are based on more questions, but it's a pretty darn good way to see what's coming down the pike for a company. Yeah, because I've seen a lot of companies use net promoter score, but where I haven't seen them be as disciplined is measuring the lifetime value of customers. They, they do one, but they forget that one is meant to be 
done hand in hand. Look, everybody's looking for a shortcut, right? Yeah. And, and it, it, let's face it, management is complicated and yeah. difficult. So just give me one thing. I just want one yeah. thing that I can focus on. Let me focus on one thing. And the truth is that if I, if, I, if you're going to focus on one thing, I'd ask you to focus on growing a lifetime value. Yeah. That makes most sense, yeah. And then use, use net promoter scores as an indicator of what is happening. Yes. Net promoter scores are an indicator. That's a good, I mean, that should be like the headline statement here. It well, tells it. you yeah. where you're going, but it doesn't tell you how to get there and the value. You have to figure those things out. Exactly. exactly. I like that. But let's come back to loyalty. There's one part of loyalty I want to discuss. And, and if you have extremely loyal customers like the bank you mentioned and Vanguard and these football teams I keep on mentioning, what happens when banks, not just banks, when companies make missteps because Loyal customers tend to be very vocal. <laughs> you upset them and they vote aggressively. Yeah. So how do companies manage that? I mean, because on the one hand, you want very loyal customers. Mm -hmm. but at the same time, you don't want to upset them, even if it's inadvertent. How, how do the successful companies manage that? It's interesting that you, um, you bring that up because in many companies, there's a lot of confusion about um, the order of operations. Mm -hmm. And I guess one way to, to think about this is that there's two sets of things that you need to do if you want to earn the loyalty of your customers. The baseline, the foundation, is that you need to simply satisfy their fundamental needs so that you don't lose them. Yes. And, and that really, for me, breaks down to three things. One, the product or service that you offer has to meet some fundamental need that they have at a reasonable price relative to competition. You know, just the value proposition has to be good. Two, you have to deliver that the way that they expect to get it. Not just the way you promised it, but also based on their experiences with analogous or other things that help shape their expectations. And then three, in the inevitable case that a problem arises or an issue or something, you have to recover. You just have to do what's right to earn back their trust. And, and doing all that, just it's it, you know that gets you to baseline of I probably won't lose you as a customer, mm. and in net promoter language that creates a lot of passives. It's good, but if you want to create promoters, if you want people to be enthusiastically you know advocating mm -hmm. on your behalf, then you have to do one or both of two things. One, you have to deliver what everybody else delivers in a truly exceptional way, mm. or or and or. You have to deliver things that your competitors just don't offer, that they can't get anywhere else. Mm -hmm. and, and I think it's, it's, you know, it's as simple and as complicated as that. But if you, if you spend all of your time eliminating defects and, not, and you're not investing in what takes longer to do, which is differentiating your offering, yes. differentiating your delivery, then you're going to find yourself ultimately falling behind the market. Yeah. And if you try, you know, conversely to differentiate off of a crumbling foundation where you're just committing all kinds of sins with mm -hmm. defects and problems, well, it's going to ring hollow and you're going to lose people at the bottom of the bucket as quickly or worse than you pour them into the top. Well, the thing that stuck with me is something you said, you have to deliver it the way customers expect it. Mm -hmm. I didn't think that would jump out, but it does jump out because... If you do things differently from where a customer is conditioned to act, for example, when they go into a bank, they measure you quite harshly on that. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of mm -hmm. companies are really focused on doing things the way they want to do it because it's good for their bottom line. It's good for the way they are structurally set up, <laughs> right? Well, it's a process focus versus a customer need or even you know what we would call a customer episode focus, Yes, which is you know I have a process that I have to – deliver mm. consistently at high quality at low cost. And so in order to make that process work, here's what you customer have to do. Yes. But you if you pass flip it on the, to the customer. Right, right. You make if, it the customer's If you flip problem. the lens and you say, yeah, what does the customer want? Well, they want it they want it fast and easy and low cost. It's a, it's a similar but not exactly the same uh, set of objectives. Mm. And it leads to very different decisions about how you go about it. Another point would be if you have a process focus, you tend to also have a channel focus. So here's how it should work on the web. 
I'm in charge of the web. And then there's somebody near me who draws on some of the same technology assets and says, and here's how the mobile app works. But we're operating pretty independently. And then there's a whole different world in the contact center or in the, the retail store. And they don't talk to each other. They're not working off the same, the same playbook. And so customers fail out of the mobile app or the web into the call center. And the call center is just completely powerless to fix the problems and make the, the process easy for the customer. And oh, by the way, the customer starts out on the phone ticked off. Yes. So it's, it's just setting up it's one channel to fail because another channel wasn't quite doing its job. And I'm, I guarantee you that if it's a functionally driven organization or a process driven organization, the web guys aren't actually accountable for what they dump on the contact center. Yeah, and I, th- I think companies never really think through the, the cost of, of not having loyal customers. I mean, one thing that comes to mind very quickly for me is that if you've got upset customers who are calling into your call center and are screaming at your call center support staff, you're going to have a high rate of turnover in call center employees. Mm-hmm. And you're going to have absolutely you're going to have employees that have headaches every day, dispirited coming to work. It's it's just so you know we talk about loyalty, but it's also cost to not doing this beyond just lost sales. It's also dispiriting to working companies that have upset customers. One of my recent uh, clients in their contact center had a a room in the you know off to the side that was filled with pillows and uh, punching bags and stuff and it was it was the you know kind of energy release room where people would go if they were really frustrated after handling dozens and dozens of angry customers and they would just you know vent yes i mean one of the things i do is whenever i speak to customer support i'm always polite because i can imagine what they're going through it can't be fun. You know, I try to be, but... Um, <laughs> we I'm all are human, right? We have our so. good days and our bad days. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. But just coming back to the point about uh, loyalty, what happens when you upset your customers? I mean, it could well, be just a little I, mistake. How do you handle it? Or, or, or is it because of the nature of the relationship, provided it's once off, they, they'll let you get away with it? So here's the here's the thing that to keep in mind. What you're trying to do is you're trying to you're, you're trying to recover the lifetime value of this customer which means that whatever you do in that moment is about recovering the relationship and so I like to discourage people from calling that service recovery which mm-hmm. tends to be the way that they talk about it and instead yeah. talk about it as relationship recovery and the other thing that recovering the lifetime value implies is that you just can't you can't just buy back the customer's loyalty. Yeah. Don't just give them, you know, $2,000 so that they shut up. It, 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 first of all, it just won't work. It, we, and there's a lot of research to show that that's the case. But more importantly, it, it'll, it'll send you out of business. It'll make your net promoter score go up temporarily, but it'll send you out of business. So when you have differentiate between an individual customer that is frustrated by some sort of edge case or the treatment that they got, there, it's about recovering that individual customer's relationship and doing things like apologizing, listening with empathy, committing to address the root cause of whatever it is that they they experienced offline. You so know, this is like being in a relationship. It, it absolutely is. It, I mean, That's what everything it is, right? I just said. You'd you use with your spouse. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, if, you are, if your spouse sees you looking at the waitress, it's going to take you a well, long her, if, time to just earn give the your spouse again, five, right? No, no, just give your spouse five bucks. That'll, that'll fix it. <laughs> you know, with, with that analogy, Here you, go. Here's you can a see credit. how ridiculous it sounds when companies just throw money at a problem. No, that's right. And, and you know, on the other hand, mm-hmm. you don't want to ignore it. Yes. So it, it really is. It's, it's human. It's human. We, we, the essence of what has happened generally is that a customer put their trust in you to do something yes. I love and that. you That's a broke good that trust. That's why it's relationship recovery because you, you have to regain their trust. And now, now there's another case here, which is you took an action at scale and ticked off dozens mm-hmm. or hundreds or thousands of customers, or even worse, you did something that became very public. Mm-hmm. Now you got a whole different scale of, of problem and challenge to recover from. And the the starting point is each individual customer who suffered it at whatever your hand, you know, the, the issue was, you've got to do something to recover their trust. And, you know, you can, and on top of that, you're probably going to have to do something a little more public, whether it's acknowledging 
in some sort of one-to-one communication, you know, and a mea culpa or doing something in the press or, uh, you know, something else. And I, I, there, there are dozens of examples of companies doing this very well, especially in the last few years, but it, it's, it, it's gotta be, it's gotta be something that you have a, a mindset of testing and learning how to do as an organization so that you can uh, be ready when something big happens and have confidence in the payback on that investment that you're making to recover those relationships. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. It's almost as if they will forgive you if you are sincere in wanting to be forgiven. Generally, generally. I mean, most people who are angry with you, I guess another way to say it is um, there's a saying that the opposite of love is is not hate. Yeah, it's indifference. Indifference. Yeah. You don't want to be in that zone. <laughs> a, an angry customer still believes that you did something that they weren't expecting. They didn't want you to do that. They want you to be better. So there's still hope when they're angry. But yes. when they've just completely written you off, you're not going to hear from them. They're just like, they're done. Yeah, which is interesting because most companies try to minimize interactions with upset customers versus having a philosophy of rebuilding a relationship, right? I think I think the you know it's it everything I need to know I learned in kindergarten. <laughs> That's a good way to end the podcast actually. <laughs> Thank you so much Rob. Is there anything else you want to add before we wrap up? No, I I really enjoyed our conversation. It was really fun. Yeah, I enjoyed it a lot. I learned a lot um which is always a good sign of a conversation. Uh, it also got me thinking a little bit about things I maybe don't think about deeply enough when you comes to when it comes to managing clients. I think it's always good to always ask yourself, "Am I doing the best for my clients?" That is a that is a very very good philosophy. And you helped me with that today, so thank you very much. Well, my and, pleasure. Uh, otherwise, have a good Christmas, and if you travel, travel safely. Thank you. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.